the smallest, most seemingly insignificant events can change the course of a lifetime. These forgettable moments are the ones we often take for granted. Moments so lacking in importance, your brain chooses to filter them out of memory. Stopping for a cup of coffee. Having to go back inside before you get to your car because you grabbed the wrong set of keys. Finding yourself five minutes late for a bus you weren't supposed to miss. But sometimes, these seemingly inconsequential events are actually seeds. Seeds we don't even realize we've planted. A moment like this occurred in the winter of 1928 in Illinois, just outside of Chicago, when a 16-year-old girl named Betty Robinson was late for a train. Her biology teacher, Charles Price, took the same train as Betty every morning while commuting to Thompson Township High School. He'd made it on time that day, and as he saw Betty, who was late, running as fast as she could to try and catch the train, he knew there was no way the teenager wasn't going to be late for class. She was simply too far behind. She'd have to wait on the freezing cold platform for the next departure. Price took his seat, settled in for his commute, when suddenly, shockingly, Betty sat down next to him. Price was a biology teacher, but he was also a former track athlete and a track coach for the school. He knew fast when he saw it. The next day, Betty agreed to run again. This time, it was through the hallways of her high school while Price timed her. Again, he was astonished at what he saw. The raw, untrained potential in Betty stunned him. There was no girls' track team at the Thompson Township High School. Only the boys had been allowed to run. Until Betty. She joined the boys' team, and not long after that, the Illinois Women's Athletic Club reached out to her with an invitation. Betty made her racing debut at a regional meet, where she finished second to the, at the time, U.S. 100-meter record holder, Helen Filkey. Next, after running the 100 meter in 12 seconds, she beat the world record of 12.2 seconds at the Chicago-area Olympic trials. However, her record was thrown out, the officials citing wind assistance. At her third meet, the finals, which took place that year in Newark, New Jersey, she came in second, which qualified her for a spot on the U.S. Olympic team of 1928. This was the first year in history that women were allowed to compete in track and field events in the Olympics. Only four months after Price had seen Betty run for the first time, the 16-year-old was on a boat heading for Amsterdam, preparing to represent her country in the Olympics. Because on one winter day in 1928, a girl who had more talent than she could have realized had been late for a train. That's not even close to the most incredible part of this story. Join me as we uncover one of the most spectacular comeback stories of all time. This is the phenomenal, true story of Betty Robinson. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside.
1928 Olympic Games hosted in Amsterdam were the start of several firsts. For the first time, a symbolic fire was lit during the Games, though the Olympic flame and torch relay wouldn't occur until the 1936 Summer Games. Greece led the Parade of Nations that year for the first time, with the hosting Dutch team marching in last. The Greece first host last positions in the parade is a tradition that remains to this day. More importantly for Betty, this was the first year in history that women were finally allowed to compete in both gymnastic and athletic, or track and field, events. A few famous winning streaks started in Amsterdam as well, when India's men's field hockey team took home the first of six gold medals in the event. Hungary would take home their first of seven golds in team saber fencing. There was also a now legendary moment, which was so peacefully perfect that it's on the official Olympic site for the 1928 Games. The Australian rower, Henry Pierce, stopped halfway through his race to let a family of ducks pass safely in front of him. He still won that race and took home the gold. Elizabeth Robinson, Betty for short, though she also went by Babe, wasn't just excited. She was ecstatic. The trip from New York to Amsterdam on the ship the SS President Roosevelt took nine days, and she loved every minute of it. There was a makeshift track on deck where she and 17 other women could practice. Until four months ago, she didn't even know women could compete in races. She was a typical teenager. She played guitar, enjoyed theater, went to school. Now she was making history as one of the first women ever to compete in Olympic track and field events. Four American women competed for a spot at the starting line of the historic 100-meter final. Betty finished second in her trial heat and first in her semifinal. She was the only American who made it to the 100-meter final that year. She was competing against two Germans and three Canadians, one of whom was Fanny Rosenfeld, a 24-year-old who had already set several records in the trials and had already beaten Betty once in the heats. When she crouched down into the starting position, ready to run against the world's fastest Olympians, it was only the eighth time Betty had ever run a 100-meter race. She'd brought two pairs of running shoes with her, she didn't realize it until the race was about to start, but she had accidentally grabbed two left shoes. Someone rushed out to grab a right shoe for Betty, and they just made it back to her as she began thinking she was going to have to run the whole thing barefoot. With both shoes on now, Betty and her competitors got into their starting positions. Every woman there knew the stakes. They all knew that whoever won this race didn't just take home a gold medal, they took home a historic first. Win or lose, it was a life-defining moment. Betty wasn't the only one feeling the pressure. There were two false starts which led to the disqualification of two athletes, Canadian Myrtle Cook and German Lenny Schmidt. That brought the number of competitors down to four. The starting pistol went off, and every runner gave it everything they had. Twelve seconds later, Betty and her biggest competition, Rosenfeld, were neck and neck. Point two seconds after that, Betty crossed the finish line first, tying the world record. 
Bewildered after the most important 12.2 seconds of her life thus far, Betty hadn't even realized she'd won until her friends jumped over the railing, unable to contain their excitement, and threw their arms around her as the familiar flag of her home country was raised, confirming her victory. She had won by 0.1 seconds, and she'd made history doing it. She'd been running for five months. She remains to this day, as of this recording in May of 2023, the youngest 100-meter champion in Olympic history. It must have been frustrating for Rosenfeld, a record holder herself, to lose a historic race to someone so new to the sport. She did get some validation, however, after she and her Canadian team beat Betty and her Americans in the 4x100-meter relay later in the Games. In that race, Canada took home the gold, and America went home with the silver. Before the 1928 games, Betty had left home a normal, small-town American kid. She returned a star athlete. According to the New York Times, there were ticker tape parades celebrating her down both Broadway in New York and State Street in Chicago. Betty, who was nicknamed Babe, even got to meet a Babe more famous than herself when she was introduced to Babe Ruth. Her hometown threw a parade in her honor as well, and a crowd of 20,000 presented her with a diamond watch and a silver cup from her high school. Her life had completely changed in five months. Now a returned Olympian, Betty started taking the art of running more seriously. She'd loved competing in the Olympics and was determined to run to victory once again in the next games. The next Summer Olympics were set for 1932, and they would be taking place in her home country, in the city of Los Angeles. Betty trained, and she trained hard, training she had to intertwine with schoolwork. She finished her last year of high school, then, still training, left for Northwestern University to begin her degree in physical education. She set a 50-yard dash record of 5.8 seconds in 1929, along with a new 100-yard dash record of 11.4 seconds. She pulled that one off on a 91-degree day. That's 33 degrees Celsius. She went on to set more records, 6.9 seconds for 60 yards, 7.9 for 70. Betty had an enormous amount of raw talent. After training and honing that talent, she grew stronger, faster, and it seemed that no one racing against her would see anything but the back of her head and the swirling colors on the heels of her shoes. Training for the Olympics while going to college made for a busy schedule, but Betty still managed to take time to have a little fun every once in a while. On June 28, 1931, Betty met her cousin. He had just earned his pilot's license and had a biplane. According to Team USA's website, it was a hot day, and Betty's coaches told her she couldn't go swimming because it involved using muscles they didn't want her using while she trained. She thought an afternoon up in the air with her cousin would be a perfect way to cool off. According to Joe Gergen, who wrote a book on Betty's life called The First Lady of Olympic Track, The Life and Times of Betty Robinson, this is what happened next. Betty donned some goggles and a leather helmet and climbed into the plane wearing her colorful beach pajamas. Her cousin, a new pilot who was excited to show Betty what his new plane could do, started the engine and took off, 
for the sky. According to Betty herself, when they climbed to 600 feet, she knew instantly that something was wrong. The motor stalled, and the plane suddenly dropped into a nosedive and began hurtling back towards the ground. Still able to keep his head, even in this life-or-death situation, her cousin had the wherewithal to cut the ignition before impact, which prevented the wreck from catching fire. The plane crashed into the ground, and in a moment, Betty's life was forever changed. Both she and her cousin were unconscious when help arrived. There was a mechanic, Robert Shannon, who worked at the nearby Ashburn flying field. He rushed to the scene and dragged Betty from the wreckage. Her left arm was broken. There was an eight-inch gash on her forehead from a fractured skull. She had multiple broken ribs, and her leg was fractured in several places. Shannon looked at the mangled body of Betty and was certain she was going to die. Some sources say he already believed she was dead, but Betty cleared this point up herself later, saying he simply believed she was about to die. He put her in his trunk, which couldn't have been the most comfortable place for a broken body, and drove her to the Oak Forest Infirmary. He had a friend there who was an undertaker, and believing there was no hope for her, that's where he dropped her off. Her cousin was in better shape, though still critically injured, with his left leg badly damaged, so he was taken directly to the hospital. He survived, but according to an article from Runner's World, his leg was amputated years later. Betty also survived, but her diagnosis was grim, and it was a hard recovery. Betty drifted in and out of consciousness during an agonizing 11 weeks in the hospital. A silver rod and pin were inserted to stabilize her severely broken leg. She was placed in a hip-to-heel cast. That leg would remain a half-inch shorter than her other one for the rest of her life. Betty said later she only survived at all because she'd already been in such good physical shape. Now, confined to a wheelchair, doctors weren't even sure if she would ever regain the ability to walk, let alone run. Betty, a young woman at the very start of what had promised to be an incredible career, was now being told that the life she had dreamed for herself was over. Over even more suddenly than it had begun. They told her she would never run again. Betty figured she'd already accomplished the impossible once, and she decided, after a heartbreaking diagnosis, that she was going to do it again. The 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles came and went without Betty Robinson. Her dream of taking home another gold at those games was shattered with her leg in the wreckage of her cousin's plane. At 20 years old, Betty was told her career was over. She was understandably devastated. She'd been in peak physical condition, which the doctors believed played a key role not just in her survival, but in her rehabilitation. It became clear that Betty would be able to walk again albeit with a limp and one leg a half-inch shorter than the other. 
It was hard, both physically and emotionally, for Betty to even get out of bed some days. There were plenty of days when all she wanted to do was lie there and let the devastation of her circumstances consume her. Other days, she would stand up. Then she would walk slowly outside, maybe only a couple of steps, but those couple of steps turned into short walks, then longer walks. As her bones healed and she retrained her muscles, she was able to do a little bit more each day. These small wins gave her confidence, but rehabilitation was not easy, and it was painfully slow. Eventually, Betty wanted to see if she could still run, a thought that must have been in the forefront of her mind as she healed. She was slow, her body wasn't put together the way it had been. She would never again be able to get into the crouch position sprinters used at the start of a race. That meant no more competitive 100-meter races. But maybe, she thought, she could still be part of a team. It took five years of working tirelessly through pain, failure, and loss for Betty to compete again. Her pain lessened as she healed. Her failures were made more insignificant by every small success, and her sense of loss was slowly upended by her daring to believe that she could still accomplish something, even if it wasn't what she had originally envisioned. She adapted her goals, she honed her skills in both mind and body, and in 1936, she knew she was ready to try out for the Olympic relay team. The competition was fiercer than it had been back in 1928. On top of that, while the U.S. Olympic Committee funded the men's track and field team, the women were told they would have to come up with their own travel money. This alone presented another hurdle. The medical bills incurred from Betty's accident and rehabilitation were huge. Her father had lost his job, the Great Depression had hit, and if she somehow received a spot on the 1936 team, it meant she would have to sell almost everything she owned to get to the games in Berlin. She found a job working as a secretary. She sold her Olympic ribbons and pins, but not her gold medal. She would never part with that. Though Betty wasn't as fast as she'd once been, she was still fast enough. In 1931, she was told she would never run again. In 1936, she was on her way to Berlin as part of the Women's Olympic Relay Team. She would run with Helen Stevens, Harriet Bland, and Annette Rogers. The Olympic Games of 1936 were tense. By then, many people could no longer ignore what was already happening in Germany. By the time the game started, Hitler had already remilitarized the Rhineland in violation of the Versailles Treaty that had ended World War I. And already, Jews, LGBTQIA people, Roma, leftists, and those with disabilities were being taken to concentration camps. German Jewish and Roma athletes were excluded from the games. Several countries called for a boycott of what people soon started calling the Nazi Olympics. The boycott ultimately failed, and the games were held. To placate international criticisms and create a false sense of peace in Germany, Hitler temporarily removed many of the anti-Jewish signs in Berlin, 
and had German papers modulate their fascist rhetoric. Hitler even allowed a fencer, Helene Mayer, to represent Germany in the games, even though her father was Jewish, as a way to placate the international community. There were criminal penalties for homosexuality in Germany at the time, and Hitler assured the participating countries their athletes would not be subjected to those criminal penalties. Jewish athletes from countries other than Germany would still compete. According to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, at the same time these placations were issued, 800 Roma citizens of Berlin were arrested and kept under guard in a camp just south of the Berlin suburbs and Nazi fascism was strengthening its chokehold on Germany. This fascism was camouflaged for the 1936 games, though many people all over the world still saw through it. After the games, the facade would fall completely, World War II would begin, and according to the National World War II Museum, upwards of 85 million people, both citizens and soldiers alike, would die because of fascism. Let's hope we've learned our lesson. Hitler wanted these games to promote the myth of Aryan racial superiority. This myth was shattered when nine different Jewish athletes won medals at the games. It was further disproven when African-American athlete Jesse Owens famously took home four gold medals from the 1936 games. Not only did he do that, Owens tied the world record in the 100-meter race and broke three world records when he ran the 200-meter race in 20.7 seconds, leapt 26 feet and 3 eighths inches in the long jump, and ran to victory with his team in the 4x100-meter relay in 39.8 seconds. These games are the reason this episode is titled The Second Life of Betty Robinson. Five years prior, the mechanic who found her had put her in a trunk and taken her straight to a mortician, thinking there was no hope she would even survive. Now she was an Olympian for the second time. Because she couldn't get into the starting position for the 100-meter race, she had to watch it from the sidelines. She said later that was a difficult thing to do. The only way for her to compete was in the relay. At a standing start position, she would be the third of four runners. Betty knew this was probably her last Olympics. It was her last chance to give it everything she had as an Olympian. The German team was favored to win. And as soon as the starting pistol sounded, all doubts that any other country could take home the gold began to fade. The Americans fell behind, and the Germans took the lead. By the time the second runner passed the baton to Betty, the Germans were already ahead by a whopping nine meters. That didn't matter. It couldn't matter for Betty, who after five years of pain and grit and failure and pushing through every voice telling her she'd never run again, including her own, knew that all she had to do now was run. Betty flew until she reached her teammate Helen Stevens. The Americans were now in second place, Stevens, who had just won gold for the 100-meter race, bolted after the Germans. And then, something surprising happened. The German runner, Ilse Dorfelt, tried to shift her baton from one hand to the other, and dropped it. That was all Betty and the Americans needed. Stevens blew past the Germans and crossed the finish line first. 
Betty, who not long ago had been told she would never run again, had just won another Olympic gold medal. How's that for a comeback story? Betty said later, quote, I wish they hadn't dropped the baton. Helen was faster. We would have won anyway. When the team returned to the U.S., there was a parade held in New York. Jesse Owens was seated in the first car, making its way down the city streets. The women's relay team, with their monumental win, were given a spot right behind in the second car. Those were the last Olympic Games for Betty, but she remained in the world of racing as an official. According to Gergen, she became a judge and a timer at track meets. Her passion became traveling around the country, giving lectures and advocating for women's rights to play and pursue their athletic dreams. She spoke often for the Women's Athletic Association and the Girls' Athletic Association. Eventually, she married the owner of an upholstery firm named Richard Schwartz and had two kids, a son, then a daughter. She thrived for decades until she began having to fight another kind of battle. Betty suffered from both cancer and Alzheimer's. Neither of them prevented her from showing up for the Olympics again in 1996. The 84-year-old Betty Robinson carried the Olympic torch through the streets of Denver, Colorado, as it made its way to Atlanta, Georgia, a tradition younger than she was. According to Gergen, two years later in 1998, at an Olympic memorabilia show where she and Olympic discus champion Ale Orator were scheduled to cut the ribbon together, the 86-year-old Betty cut the ribbon first, then jokingly quipped, I'm still the fastest. Betty passed away in 1999 at the age of 87. Her career included world records at 50, 60, 70, and 100 yards. She brought home a silver and two gold Olympic medals, and she was the first woman in history to win an Olympic gold in a track and field event. She was inducted into the National Track and Field Hall of Fame, as well as the U.S. Track and Field Hall of Fame and the Helms Hall of Fame. She is still somehow missing from the Olympic Hall of Fame, an oversight that will hopefully one day be remedied. In the meantime, though she is no longer with us, we still have her story. And it reminds us that even when life completely derails us, shatters us in mind body, and soul. There is always a way forward. And even if it isn't the path we had originally planned on traveling, it can still have one hell of a view. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. It was an honor to tell Betty's story, and I hope you found it as inspiring as I did. By the way, huge shout-out to my newest patron, Destiny. Destiny, thank you so much for your support. You win the Summer 2023 Gold Medal of Awesomeness. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. You may have noticed I didn't use my normal intro song this time, and that's because recurring music licenses are expensive. Please bear with me as I find a new one that fits my budget. If you enjoyed listening to the show today, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. 
If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, and I've pretty much ghosted Twitter, though sometimes I still check it. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history. Thank <laughs> you.